From the Times of Northwest Indiana and nwi.com slash podcasts, you're listening to Byline. The podcast about the newspaper's most fascinating stories and the reporters who tell them. I'm Kale Wilk, and this time Byline dives further into the history books crime story that reverberated in region politics. We'll talk with the police officer assigned to investigate a murder case. I feel like we let them down. Uh, we, that case was very, very solvable, and we didn't get the job done. Along with an attorney tasked with pursuing a conviction. When you pull the trigger for a prosecution like this, you need to be a pretty good shot. You can't be hit, you can't nick an ear or something like that. It's be pretty much down the middle. Thanks for joining us again. It's the print date of the next selection in the Crimes That Rock the Region series. And we've got a case that is stuck like glue in modern history for the region. The murder of Jay Given. Tasked with compiling this story here is a repeat character from last time. Ms. Allie Kirkman. Let me get my phone. I need to get my phone. Give me one moment. While she's quickly doing that, I'll fill you in with a little review. Allie is our South Lake County reporter, so she's often involved in covering the municipal planning and happenings in places including the Tritown area, Crown Point, Cedar Lake, and Lowell. But she's also got her pet projects she tends to as well, including these older crime stories we're looking at. And if you're looking for a crime that did indeed rock the region, Jay Given is at the top tier. When I did start getting into um, like looking into local crimes and we started talking about the series, this was one of the first crimes that came up in our list of series or list of stories for the series that we want to explore. One of the most, if not the most um, notorious crimes that have gone, gone unsolved almost for 40 years now. Um, and since it is an unsolved case, um, there's obviously still a bunch of relevance to it today. Um, It is still an open investigation with the East Chicago Police Department. Um, The case itself has inspired a bunch of books and murder mystery TV shows and documentaries. A lot of people are really interested in kind of all the surprising turns and twists that this case has had because there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of moving people involved in it. And with a case like this, I will say, like, trying to track things down with a case that's still an open investigation in terms of finding records or obtaining police reports, any kind of case filings, really hard, one, because of how old it is. And some of those records are actually gone physically. And two, because it's an open investigation, you can't get your hands on some of those records because, you know, the police are still trying to find who murdered Jay Given. As noted, it's a large case. And for the purposes of a podcast, we'll try to streamline through what we can. For me, as a complete outsider coming in, it's very fascinating, but also there are so many roads and avenues. I mean, everybody that I talked to with the Jay Given case said that, well, before you start with Jay Given's murder, you need to go back to who Jay Given was and 
the political divide between the African-American population and the Hispanic population. So there is a lot of background to all of these stories and all of those narratives are so crucial to that story. You can't just talk about Jay Given getting murdered without talking about his political ties or the climate that was going on in East Chicago. That's probably a good starting point to begin our story. There's a number of characters Allie has met with, some I've been able to join with her on, and they'll take turns here giving their recollections about their experiences from the early 1980s as this played out. Uh, no, no crime like it, no city like East Chicago, Indiana. Um, and I was right in the middle of it, and I still have memories of it today. This is Jack Crawford, the former Lake County prosecutor at the time. He now practices law in Indianapolis. It's, you have to, to understand the Jay Given case, you have to understand the city. It was very factionalized. And in 1981, when Jay Given was shot, it was at the height of its factionalization, if that's a word. Uh, and you had all sorts of different groups. You had a um, very heavy Greek population. Uh, you had a um, Hispanic population that was very divided between the Mexicans and the Puerto Ricans. And then you had an African-American population in the Calumet section that was prominent in the city. And then you had an, a white ethnic population comprised of Poles, uh, Czechs, uh, Serbs, Croatians, everything you could think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a segment in East Chicago, and, and they all had their own clubs, the different clubs. In the middle of those factions was Jay Given. Although the characters interviewed here will say he stuck to the background, he nonetheless was a political rainmaker. Given was the city attorney for East Chicago for a little over a decade, starting in 1963, and was close during those years with Robert Pastrick, the former mayor who, in due time, would become roiled by his own alleged political scandals. Well, there's a, such a long story that leads up to it because of who Jake Gibbon was to East Chicago and, and actually the region. He was a larger-than-life figure because of his uh, political connections. Uh, this is Gus Flores, who had a career with the East Chicago Police Department and would eventually rise to the status of chief. Speaker of the House at the time in Washington, D.C., was a person by the name of Carl, Carl Albert, and, and uh, it was widely or known or, or talked about that Jay Given had a direct line with him because they were, they were friends. So that, you know, that increased his power or uh, was a source of his power all the way to Washington, D.C. And, uh, and of course, then the state and, and local politics. But he was a very brilliant guy. Uh, not the most well-liked person. You've probably heard that before. Uh, Eventually, Given and Patrick would have a falling out. He had sued the mayor and members of the city council over violations of the Sunshine Law in regard to the sanitary district. Given would go on to be a part of his own law firm and still did contract work for the city. But the political friction was still there between him and Patrick and who they supported. And the fact that uh, Jay thought that... Uh, that may, the mayor was given too, uh, too much, uh, uh, paying too much attention to, to Robert Segovia, who was the uh, school su- superintendent, and he was uh, 
kind of developing the Hispanics, but mostly Mexicans, into a political organization that was kind of increasing in numbers and power. And, uh, and Jay wasn't too happy with that. They were not uh, considered political allies anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he had indicated, it was in, in the Times, that uh, if, if, uh, if Addison Span won as mayor, that Bob Segovia would be teaching in the classroom and John Cardona would be walking a beat. A key name to note there is Noah Addison Spann. In 1981, Spann, then the county commissioner, was running against incumbent Pastrick. As Gus Flores noted earlier, Pastrick was gaining ground with the Hispanic faction in the city. Spann, on the other hand, was said to be supported by the African-American and white factions. On May 14th of that year, Jay Given attended a political fundraiser for Spann, hosted at the Jockey Club inside the former Elks Lodge building on Magoon Avenue. It was described as Vegas style, with plenty of gambling. Given would head outside to smoke a cigarette. A fateful encounter in the building's vestibule would leave him dead, with the bullet passing through his head and shattering a window. When this happened, Gus Flores was with his wife at a wedding in Farrell, Pennsylvania, a little over the state line from Youngstown, Ohio. They were at what he remembered was called the Serbian House, when a cousin came dashing down in regard to a phone call. One of her cousins came down the hill from where he lived to the Serbian club and, and told me that the chief, my chief of police at the time was Stephen R. Stiglitz, uh, that he wanted me to call him. And so uh, I did. I called, I called him, and he told me that Jay Given had been shot and killed at the Ox Club the night before, and he wanted me to uh, be the lead in, in the investigation. At the time, I was a sergeant, and I would normally uh, assign the case to a detective. But Stig, we called him Stig, wanted me to handle this case personally. Gus set out to return to East Chicago the following day. So I got, I got home Sunday, and uh, I kind of late Sunday. The next morning I went to work, uh, and it was kind of chaotic. Everybody's talking about the case, and everybody's got their own ideas. And uh, the number of suspects at the time was... Uh, how can I say infinite? <laughs> you know, there, there's you, you did just didn't know because uh, he was loved and hated at the same time by a lot of people. You know, uh, because and probably had a lot to do with his, or had a, almost everything to do with with his politics. Deputy Police Chief John Cardona has handled the scene in the meantime. Per Flores's recollection, it had been a mess. Several hundred people were reported to be at the Elks Lodge and were stepping over Jay Given's body to get out. People from outside were peering in and entering the building. Witnesses were interviewed, including East Chicago firefighter Mark Warholic, who said a man had been standing shoulder to shoulder with Jay Given where a heated exchange happened. A single gunshot went off and a bullet went through Jay Given's head, leaving a gaping hole in the adjacent window. Cardona would later take Warholic back to the police station to get a statement as well as stop by at St. Catherine's Hospital to check on Given. There's also an infamous section in past police reports and Times archives in which a dishwasher that worked at the Elks Lodge was sitting in the vestibule, waiting for the bus, when this encounter with Jay Given happened. She chose to leave and walk home before the shooting happened. Gus Flores also says there was an unknown caller that reported the shooting to police, 
only to have the dispatcher hang up the phone. Evidence was collected from the scene, but the situation would go further south from there. So uh, I, I came in to the police station, and the first thing that uh, I did was I talked to the uh, evidence technician in charge of the, uh, collecting the evidence and sitting in, and uh, locking it away for safekeeping. And uh, he told me that the, uh, the evidence was in, in his words, pristine condition, uh, perfect condition. Uh, we had a, uh, a shell casing from a 45 and a slug, both. We didn't have the gun. Uh, and he had it all packaged up and sealed and everything, ready to send to the FBI lab. And, uh, and he said, do you want, need me to unwrap everything? And I made the, one of the biggest mistakes that I made in the case. I told him, no, I trust you. Just go ahead and send it as you, as you sealed it. A visitor from the FBI came to the police station. Not two or, about two or three weeks later, uh, an FBI agent by the name of Phil Hulchin came into the station. Phil was the first one to tell me, you, you have a problem with this evidence. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, it's been tampered with. And that's, you know, it's been well publicized. It was scraped and, and uh, the firing pin impression was punched out. And, uh, but uh, according to the FBI, it, it, uh, the damage that was done wouldn't prevent it from being matched to the weapon that fired it anyway. The, as embarrassing as that was, you know, that, that evidence was tampered with, in our custody I've always said it was a blessing because it drastically, drastically reduced the number of suspects and in the, in the suspects had to be connected with the police department. Then we started concentrating on, on the evidence tampering because whoever did that obviously had some involvement in the actual homicide. Regardless, the bullet was still tested, and Flores was informed that it was most likely fired from a Daytonics handgun. There was some disagreement about whether or not the bullet was fired by a Daytonics. Uh, you probably read about the mm -hmm. gun being a Daytonics, being a, uh, a modified Army Colt 45. If you're familiar with them, they're huge. I used to carry one in the Army. And what they did was they, they chopped the, they, they cut off the barrel, they shortened the barrel on it, and they, and they shortened the handle. So it was like a snub-nosed 45. And one, one of the FBI agents at the lab in Washington, D.C. thought that, uh, he, his opinion was, based on the, the markings on the uh, bullet casing, that it was fired from a detonics. The only officer on the force to have such a gun? John Cardona. Things that John did and said that kept pointing to him, he, uh, he was asked about his detonics, what, what happened to it after, this, after the shooting. And uh, he said that uh, he had been in Merrillville in August. Now, this was May, the, the previous August. He had been in Merrillville and his car was stolen and the detonics was in his car, along with other police paraphernalia. And, uh, and that's the last time he had the detonics. 
but we know that that's not true because we looked at the we got the police report from Merrillville and he when he reported the, uh, the car stolen he said that the weapon that was in the car was a, a Colt 45 no no a 357 Magnum it was a totally different type of gun all officers on the police force were subjected to a polygraph test including Cardona he agreed to go up there, and the three of us, the four of us, John, my, Cardona, myself, and uh, Charlie Mack, and Bobby Donzel, we go up there. If you recall that voice, that's former Detective John Mowry, who was included in the previous podcast episode. He was with the Lake County Metro Squad, which included extra detectives from North Lake County to assist with the given investigation. Their help would be fizzled out after a few weeks. He and the others he mentioned were taking John Cardona to the Keeler Polygraph Institute in Chicago. He he was nervous a little bit. I think he said that, uh, if I remember correctly, I think he said he'd never taken a polygraph test before. Anyway, uh, so we got up there and went in, and uh, Bobby and, and uh, talked to this guy, Len Harrelson, who was... Uh, who was the examiner that was going to conduct the test. And he took him in, and he was in there for quite a while. And uh, he came out and uh, told us that, um, to sum it up, he didn't pass, period, on much of anything. And um, he, I was a little bit removed He said something to Bob Townsville, and then Bob came back with, but I want you to understand, the test was over before this, before this disagreement between Harrelson and uh, Sergeant Townsville happened. The test had been completed, so, and he'd given us the verbal results and said he would forward it was something that, to the effect that I think he wanted to go to keep at him, and 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 I think Bob said no, and they just disagreed on that point, Harrelson and and, and Sergeant Townsville. But I don't want anybody to think that a disagreement happened and and we left with that. That test was done; it was concluded. One could perhaps chalk that up as strike two for Cardona. Per Time's archives, the only other element that might have worked against Cardona was reported political verbal spats between him and Jay Given. Police tried gleaning more information from sources, but reportedly witnesses were reluctant to speak. Almost a year after the murder, Jack Crawford, who you heard from before, felt it was best to bring an independent prosecutor into the situation. In comes Joseph S. Van Bocklin who was a private attorney at the time after serving as an assistant U.S. attorney. He's currently a senior judge at the district court in Hammond. Van Bocklin had represented Jay Given in previous legal cases. Well, it's a political overtone to it. Um, Cardona, one reason again we focused on, was a very high-ranking officer in what they call his 2020 group, I think it was. Um, and he was on record saying some things about Given that are not particularly complimentary, and Given that was saying things about him that are not complimentary either. So you have, you definitely have those kinds of things. And so it has a political overtone, but the two guys, what happened in that, that um, hallway, 
was an act of just. Uh, I could I could see exactly what happened. If Cardona probably came up. If Cardona did it again, I'm qualifying this. If Cardona came up and, and back at Given and tapped him on the shoulder, and Given would have turned around, probably said, "What the f are you doing here?" and something like that. And Cardona had was had reputation of being a hothead. He had a lot of uh, excessive force cases that were fired filed against him. Had was a hothead, and he got hot. That's that's my take on the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So it's a political overtone, but it was not politically motivated. And there was no planning to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it could have all ended in a second if neither one had said something to the other one. Uh, and it would have gone on, but it's not the way Jay operated, and it's not the way John operated, mm-hmm. if John was the person who did it. A grand jury led by Van Bachlin began work in November 1982 to collect evidence and witness statements. There wasn't much luck. Two years passed, and although Van Bachlin felt he could have enough evidence to get past a directive verdict of acquittal, Jack Crawford ultimately made the decision to end it. State law prevented the grand jury from continuing its investigation for more than two years, and the panel was discharged without returning an indictment. Crawford believed without any solid eyewitnesses, the county prosecutor couldn't confidently seek a conviction. He, he started off being a, he became a suspect fairly quickly, mm-hmm. and for us, it never he never quit being a suspect, mm-hmm. and probably our main suspect. Do you believe during that case you had the guy? <laughs> um, I thought I thought we had a very viable target. Put it that way. Here's Jack Crawford's take on it. Um, we had circumstantial evidence. It was kind of interesting. Although they couldn't match the shell casing to a gun because it was a damage done in the casing, the FBI was willing to testify that that shell casing came from a 45 caliber Daytonix. We were able to establish that Cardona had a gun like that. Mm-hmm. Some police had, uh, it was a gun used by police, but he had a gun, a Daytonix pistol. So we had that fact. We had the fact that the damage was done to the shell casing in the East Chicago Police Department custody. But that's all we had to point to Mr. Cardona. And um, it always struck me as somewhat unusual that if, in fact, he had done it, he remained there at the scene for some period of time, maybe a half hour afterwards, talking to witnesses and talking to people who had seen something. If I'm the guy who shot someone, and it's unclear as to whether or not anybody can identify the quote shooter, am I going to stay in that very area amidst all the other people who could have potential witnesses say, hey, wait a minute, that's the guy that did it, right there. I thought that was unusual if indeed he was the shooter, that he would remain around potential eyewitnesses. He didn't know there were no eyewitnesses, if in fact he was the shooter. And to me, that was a fact that went against him being the shooter. I remember some criticism, well, this was, this was an easy case, Crawford should have filed it. And my response, one of my responses was, that, well, if it's an easy case, then they can file it today if it's that easy. Or they could have filed it in 1990 when I left, when a new prosecutor was appointed, uh, if it was that easy a case. Here's another piece Joseph Van Bachlin said to follow that up. 
You know, again, if you, a high-profile case like this, you really, when you pull the trigger for a prosecution like this, mm-hmm. you need to be a pretty good shot. It can't be hit, you can't nick an ear or something like that. It's be pretty much down the middle. Mm-hmm. And so it's been when I've been up here and so forth, when I was a U.S. attorney and so forth, that if you're taking down a public official or something, you just can't sort of take them down because the indictment itself hurts them very badly. So you need to be a pretty straight shot. If you can't get that shot, then he should not probably should not indict. Uh, even though he probably could, he shouldn't. A common question that Allie asked across the board was whether or not any of the people we interviewed felt this would remain a cold case. The common answer was that they felt someone would eventually come forward one day that hadn't before. For the time being, we may simply be in the same spot we've been for the past few decades. The, you know, the, the, the only thing that I, th- I can think about impact on the, on the given family, you know, because I, I, right now I kind of feel bad still talking about it, to be honest with you, and the reason I, I do is because I feel for them. Uh, I don't know how, I don't know how, you know, they're all in different areas. Mrs. Given has died. I, I occasionally uh, talked to Jeff, his oldest son. Uh, his daughter and I are friends on Facebook. Uh, but I don't know how it, how it impacts them every time that this is brought up again. You know? I think at some point, I think they just want to forget about it. You know? they, they, they've had enough. You know? And uh, Like right now, I'm, I'm feeling kind of hesitant about some things. And, that, and only because of that, it, you know, it's nothing to do with you. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's because, because I feel it's for the family. It's not a case to take lightly. No, I, I just feel for the family, I really don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they I, I, I feel like we let them down. Uh, we, that case was very, very solvable. And uh, they're very highly solvable. And we didn't get the job done. I feel bad about that. In a concluding point of musing on the memories of this case, Gus Flores felt a larger theme was the political reverberations. Can the region move beyond its reputation as a politically corrupt zone in Indiana? Region. I think people, people are actually getting to the point where since something is not right with politics in, the, in this area. You know, we have to start thinking about who, who we, uh, who we elect is our leaders, who, the, the people that, that, uh, that have so much uh, influence over our lives, you know what I mean? Not take things so lightly and really look into who are you elevating into a position of power. And, and because look what happened in the past when people didn't care who became you know, uh, their leaders, as long as they draw, you know, they did something for them, you know. Uh, let's 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 start thinking in a different way. What's best for everybody, you know, for for the public in general, and uh, and who who best could represent us and do that for for us as a community. Byline is a production of the Times of Northwest Indiana. 
You can find all of our episodes at nwy.com slash digital slash audio. Reporting for this episode came from Allie Kirkman. We'd like to thank Gus Flores, Jack Crawford, Joseph S. Van Bocklin, and John Mowry for providing various comments for this podcast. If you have suggestions for an episode topic or want to share your thoughts, drop an email to kale.wilk at nwi.com. I'm Kale Wilk, and from the Times of Northwest Indiana, thank you for listening. See you next time.